All right, guys. Well, let's begin. It's 2.06. Um, well, most of you all know me, but I'll just do a brief interjection. Uh, my name is Matthew Hawkins. I am on staff with Kyle Foot. This is for my second year. One and a half years already. Uh, second year intern. Loving it so far. Been awesome. Um, I've been here at SAM for six years. Just about. I know. Old. Five and a half. Something like that. Came in fall 2017. Um, met people in Kyle and fell in with them. Had fun. Yes. Cody. Good old Cody. What? Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. And then, <laughs> but yes, and then had an awesome time and I was like, you know what, I want to serve the Lord and felt led to do the internship and be here for however long. So, yes. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Zach. Um, but yes, so earlier this year, um, like two weeks ago, I was contacted by Shay to lead a kingdom course and I'm like, sweet, this is awesome. Lucky, lucky for me, I already had a bunch of notes about these two chapters uh, because I did a similar topic um, for one of our company like retreats, um, and it was just super, super interesting. Um, and so I've entitled it "An Expository Examination of the Epistles in Revelations Two and Three, but a less mouthful saying is Seven Letters to Seven Churches." So, just a quick poll: How many people have read Revelations? Nice. Okay. Nice. Absolutely. Well, you may have heard of these churches before. Um, if not, now you're going to hear about them. So, heck yeah. Sweet. Um, just a brief picture. Um, Revelations 1 is a vision that John has of Jesus. Um, super wonderful, super awesome. Um, <clears throat> and then opens chapter 2 and 3, um, which begin. They're, they're little mini epistles from John to these seven churches. Um, in present-day Turkey. Um, I'll provide present-day locations that are there as we go along. Um, but yeah, y'all ready to, to dive into it? Oh, yeah. yes. Sweet. All righty. So I'm going to give you a brief overview of kind of what, what each letter looks like. Um, and they follow the basic pattern of a characteristic of Jesus from chapter 1. Um, there's a lot of like calling back to this vision that John has of Jesus. Eyes of flaming fire feet like bronze, walking among lampstands, hold, holding seven so, uh, stars, has a sword coming out of his mouth, wild imagery. Um, and so each of these churches begins with a, hey, this message is from Jesus XYZ, who has eyes of fire, feet of bronze, whatever, you know? <clears throat> they have a congratulations for what the church has been doing right, except for Laodicea and Sardis. Those two churches don't have any congratulations. All they have are criticisms. A and some of the other churches have a criticism about what is going wrong and how to fix it. Except for Smyrna and Philadelphia. They, there's no criticism. They're, they're doing awesome. Thriving. And then they all contain a final warning, which echoes Matthew 13, 9. Um, and a promise about some aspect of the future that God has planned for them. I mean, you can find this in each of the seven churches. They all have a characteristic, a Occasionally, a, a congratulations, a criticism, and then a final warning. These warnings and promises are not for each specific church solely, um, but they are for all the churches. Um, they are tailored to that specific church, but they are meant to be read by the rest of the churches and for the past 2,000 plus years, you know? 
Um, so they, they are still applicable to us today. <clears throat> and though each letter contains universal elements, they are precisely tailored to the addressed churches. And that's predominantly what I'm going to be talking about today, is how each letter is tailored to that specific church. Um, just some of the background, some of the cool things I found in researching about this. Overall, they appear to be have they appear to have been written to prepare the churches for a time of coming persecution, and they all emphasize the theme that they will conquer by being patient and holding firm to what God has taught them. If you could sum up Revelation two and three, prepare for a time of persecution and be patient. God is coming. <laughs> and this is a little sidebar, uh, but I'll I'll point back to it every so often. Um, but in doing my research on these churches, I discovered this, this line of thought that had divided the years of the church's existence into seven ages or periods, with each one roughly lining up with a church. Um, and so I have a brief little graphic about it. Um, I will not be talking about this and everything. This is just something interesting, um, a, a cool thought experiment, if you will. Um, and so if you all want to get back to me on what you all think about it and do some independent research on your own, go for it. <laughs> um, but yes, basically, this is the, the church. This is what the name of the church kind of means. That is um, kind of like the capital C church, that period of the greater church, um, what that lines up to, and those are the rough year estimates. <clears throat> so something, something interesting, something to think about. Again, that is not the main topic of my conversation. <laughs> oh, all right. And so, to be clear, this is just a cursory overview. If I had a week dedicated fully to researching this topic, it would take me another week to present it all. <laughs> um, so this is just seven letters, one, 1301. Um, there's so much to pull from these chapters <laughs> to sit and meditate on and pray about. Um, I, again, I could just, <clears throat> in first researching it, um, there was just so much information, I just couldn't all put it in a notes thing and researching it again in preparation for this time there's I just found out even more like this whole thought I like this there's I'm telling you there is a wealth of information that you can find about these two chapters um, so this is just a brief distillation but yes all right let's talk about the first church the church of Ephesus <clears throat> would anybody like to read it Cody <clears throat> Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. I guess. Awesome. <clears throat> so, as you may have guessed, this is written to the same church that Paul's epistle to the Ephesians was written to. Um, this church appears to have been founded by Aquila and Priscilla um, in the year 52 AD. Um, and John, who wrote this in Revelation, seems to have hung around there for a number of years before his exile. Uh, um, back to here. And Pat Patmos, John is writing this from this 
little island where he was exiled. And so it'll, it would be distributed to all those churches. Um, but yeah. And so back whenever Paul was um, on his missionary journeys, he, that was kind of his home base for two to three years. And then this is almost, Ephesus was almost certainly the mother church for these other six churches. Um, he went out from Ephesus to these other places or had sent people from Ephesus to these other places. But now the city has been in ruins for at least a thousand years. Ain't nobody living in Ephesus no more. It's just a bunch of ruins. <clears throat> so I have a quick question for y'all. What is the city of Ephesus known for? If you've read Ephesians or um, Acts, whenever Paul is in uh, Ephesus, it comes up as a source of conflict. Okay, somebody else. Right. Yes. The temple of Artemis was in Ephesus. Um, it, yeah, it was a huge source of controversy. There was a big riot, all that kind of fun stuff in, in Acts. Um, but yes, Ephesus was known for the temple of Artemis. They believed the statue like fell out of the sky or something, and so built a wonderful temple. Um, and that was that was like the attraction to go. You know, you go to Washington D.C. for like the White House or something, or the Washington Monument or something. But you go to you go to Ephesus to see the Temple of Artemis. But yeah, in the Temple of Artemis, it, there was a beautiful garden with a special tree in the center of that garden. Uh, it was on local coins, and also it was a safe haven for criminals. So, <clears throat> if you're a criminal and you did something bad, but you made it to the tree in the center of the temple, they couldn't touch you there. Um, you're, you're pretty much safe. So, what in this letter could someone from Ephesus understand very well? Verse 7. And the tree of life, exactly. Um, the tree of life was in the center of the Garden of Eden. This tree was in the center, the focal point of Ephesus. Um, <clears throat> but what's unique about the tree of life is that it is a place for people who repent, not unrepentant criminals. The image of Jesus holding seven stars in his right hand, which in the Bible often symbolizes power, um, just the right hand. He, uh, Jesus sits at God's right hand. He's the authority of, of God. Um, is a powerful image, and John writes it to the center of Roman power in the region. Like Ephesus was the hub. Like I said, the mother church, um, every letter went out from here. Is the temple uh, of Artemis, but this is also just like the Roman hotspot of the area. And so this image of God holding seven stars in his right hand, the hand of power, was obviously like just super heavy and impactful for the, for the church in Ephesus because they were under Roman power in such a uh, predominant area. But yeah, what are some of the things that Jesus praises them for? Yeah, absolutely. They rejected the teaching of these false apostles. They work hard. They were patient in suffering. Um, and there's a clear distinction between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. <clears throat> well, and what is the thing that Jesus rebukes them for? Not living in the way they Exactly, yeah. They have forgotten love. Um, they have forgotten their love for Jesus himself, and they have forgotten their love for each other as well. So what does it mean to, to love Jesus and others? You know, we have the saying in Kaiafa, love is unselfishly choosing for the highest good of God and his kingdom, or even for others. Um, something, love is something that we do for each other as Christians, 
and for the poor, the sick, the needy. It was this kind of love that distinguished them from other groups of the day, from those who followed Artemis, from those um, just Roman people, from just the Greek people, you know. It was this love that really set the church apart and made it stand out in the community. No one else loved like the Christians did, and once they lose that love, then they're no better than the rest of the other factions that are around town. They lost their, their, their standout ability. <clears throat> but yes, the letter then moves on to, teach, to, to give a positive comment about how they do not pay attention to what the Nicolaitans say. Um, there's not a lot of historical evidence about them, but we learn just a little bit more about them in the letter to Pergamum, and so we'll talk more about them then. So, have you forgotten the works you did at first? Have you been showing the poor, the sick, the needy, and each other love as Jesus intended? If not, repent, lest God come and remove your place in the church. There is no more church in Ephesus, and there has not been one for a very long time. All right. Smyrna. Would anybody like to read the epistle to Smyrna? You got it, Tyler. All right. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was there but is now alive. I know a about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those of, of those opposing me. They say that they are Jews, but they are not, because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for ten days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand that understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second of death. Thank you, thank you. <clears throat> Alright, so the, the word Smyrna signifies bitterness and comes from the root Myrrh, which, if you remember from the story of Jesus and Lazarus, is a burial spice, relating to Jesus' depiction of himself and connotates precious uh, bittering and suffering. Myrrh was super expensive, super precious, um, and so that's where we get the precious from. So Smyrna signifies precious bitterness or suffering, which is the Christian view of persecution. You know, we grow through persecution. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it sucks, but our faith is tested, you know, we, we come out the other side refined. Yeah. Um, and, yes, so this church kind of is thought to be representative of the church, um, of like the martyr church, um, which is whenever a lot of the persecutions were happening um, in the late, or in the early ages of the church, I don't know the dates, <laughs> but yes. This church was most likely founded in Paul's third missionary journey. Um, Smyrna was eventually rebranded as Izmir and is the third largest city in Turkey. And there is still a church presence there today. It is the only one 
of the seven to still exist today. The characteristic of Jesus here is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. This probably alludes to the fact that the city of Smyrna had been destroyed and then rebuilt a few times. So this kind of image of dead and then coming back to life would have resonated with the citizens. By the time Revelations was written, the church was fairly multi-ethnic, containing both Jews and non-Jews. Yet the Jewish synagogue was still thriving. And of course, they did not believe that the risen Jesus was Israel's (coughs) long-awaited Messiah. Since Christianity wasn't born out of thin air, but it had its basis in the Jewish faith, this caused a lot of problems with members of the synagogue as they rejected Jesus and his followers. They accused them of all sorts of kind things. And we have like records of this, of just the Jews trashing on the Christians because they hated them. (laughs) Um, But in Hebrew, the word Satan, does anybody know what that means? Adversary. Adversary, accuser, exactly. <clears throat> that is what Satan, the devil, does against us. He accuses us. He's, a, he's our adversary before God. So what do you get when you have a synagogue that accuses? A synagogue of Satan. <laughs> Jesus didn't find anything to, get, to condemn in this church, but he does issue a warning that persecution is coming. Um, like most of the dates in Revelations, this is probably not a literal 10 days, um, but we don't really know what it is. But that's okay. And so Jesus promises a crown of life to those who faithfully finish the race. And this may have also been um, resonant in in the Smyrnians' mind uh, because Smyrna was built on a steep hill. And if you looked at it from a certain angle, it looked like it kind of had a crown on its head. Um, And so this is a fairly potent metaphor as well, uh, or potent, potent image. So, what does it look like to be patient in suffering? Will you be patient in suffering even until the point of death? You got the next one, Zach. (laughs) (laughs) Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamon. This is a message from one with a sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a sim- similar way, you have Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the man that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Awesome. Thank you, thank you. <coughs> so, the name Pergamum means united in marriage, or high tower, which 
the high tower implies prominence. And so back to the, uh, the seven ages, seven churches theory. Um, this church is thought to have been like the governmental church when governance and religion were united and married. Um, this is also when the church exploded in eminence and power, whenever the Roman Catholic Church was like the ruling power of the world because it was the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, Pergamum was built on a hill, and in the center of town was an acropolis with a number of majestic pagan temples that overshadowed the city and the surrounding country. As you may imagine, this could be a pretty intense image for a number of young Christian believers, just <clears throat> living in the shadow of this area that had a ton of different temples dedicated to demons. This area is referred to as where Satan has his throne. So this is, this is definitely probably a reason why it's worded, quite worded like this. Um, but also, the god um, Asclepius, Asclepius was worshipped there, and his symbol was a serpent. Pergamum was also the center of the imperial, imperial cult of Rome, who worshipped the emperors. And this city was the, the seat of, Roman, of the Roman governor of the region, and John absolutely believes that the devil has been using Rome to accomplish his purposes. So Satan has his throne in this city for a number of different reasons. Um, but yeah. From the context in, in this passage, the church appears to have gone with the flow and become assimilated to the surrounding culture, which, if you all remember and have read about the story of Balaam and Balak, that's exactly what happened with Israel. <clears throat> Does anybody remember what happened in that story? That's all good. I have it written down anyway. <laughs> Balaam was paid by the Moabite king to curse Israel, but God forbade Balaam, Balaam to curse Israel. And so he went another way and tempted Israel with Moabite women who then got them to worship idols. This is found in Numbers 28, uh, 22 through 25. So basically... The church had lost its ability to say no to the surrounding culture. Yeah. And so in verse 17, it talks about, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. The church didn't have to worry about not eating things sacrificed to idols um, <clears throat> because God would give them manna from heaven, his words of life. Does anybody know where some of that manna was stored? Heck yes. Exactly. What is the Ark sometimes referred to? Probably in a warehouse in D.C. We saw that in um, Indiana Jones. <laughs> yes. Um, so, um, what, what's another name for the Ark? Or some of the other names for the Ark? Does anybody know? called the mercy seat um, also oh, throne of god um and again what is this place called oh satan's throne <laughs> satan's throne so this is another another layer of imagery of of um metaphor illusion all that kind of stuff um but yeah and so for this final image um as it each one I'll give a white stone, and this stone will be engraved a new name. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of d debate about the meaning of this image, but one popular belief is that it was custom to give out stones with people's names written on them as tickets to like feasts and parties and that kind of stuff. So if we may tease out the meaning of this image, if 
this is accurately, if this is an accurate image. Jesus is promising that if they, if they listen to the Spirit, they would receive an invitation to an intimate and personal relationship with him where he would use their private name. Not only him and then yourself will know, which that's pretty nice. I mean, that'd be cool, right? So, to sum up, where have we lost our ability to say no to the, surra- to the prevailing culture? Mm-hmm. Where have you been allowing your, cho- your choices to hurt your witness to other people? Mm-hmm. Would you like to face God's <coughs> two-edged sword? Ready, Zach? <laughs> Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thyatira. <laughs> this is a message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that women, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sins and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give each of you what you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira, who have not followed this false teaching, evil truths as they call them, the depths of Satan, actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone who has ears must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the church. Awesome. Thank you, Zach. All right. So, Thyatira, it is modern-day Ahisar um, in Turkey. This is the longest letter to the churches, which is interesting because they were the smallest of the seven churches. Thyatira was known for its smelting work with copper and bronze. The local deity, Apollo Tyrominius, the patron god of the bronze trade, was portrayed on the local coins with the Son of God, or the Emperor. The previous epistles are from, and then, or like, in in quotations, from, and then they talk about an attribute of God. But here, this epistle is from the name of God, a Son of God, one of the names of God. So there is definitely power in addressing this letter from the true Son of God, not the emperor, the Roman emperor, but the, from the actual son of God, whose feet are like bronze. 
in the area where there's a ton of bronze trade, <coughs> bronze myths and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so the church had been doing some wrong things in the past, but they were clearly back on the right track, as we see in verse 19. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But there was still something that was holding them back. This church had been tolerating a woman who John nicknames Jezebel, who had been leading them to do some of the same things that the church in Pergamum had been accused of. The church must not compromise, even if it makes life in the surrounding culture easier. We can't just go with the flow. We can't just assimilate to the surrounding culture. We cannot compromise what we believe. Jesus praises those who have held fast to what he taught them and who did not compromise in the face of temptation. And he promises some of that same messianic authority shown in Psalms 2.9 to those who are victorious. Um, then they will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. This is straight from when the first messianic psalm, Psalm 2. Also, this is the first mention in Revelation of Jesus returning for the church. And verse 25. That we hold tightly to what I have until I come. Which we know he's coming back. So this is just the first reference. So cool. And so in verse 27, it talks about the morning star. So this morning star is most likely Venus um, when it is brightest just before dawn. Um, with the way the planets rotate and all that jazz. I didn't take stars and galaxies, so I can't explain it. But in any case, Venus <laughs> is always bright right before, right before dawn. Um, and this is what we Christians are supposed to be, a sign that the new day is coming, mm-hmm. one of love and service and patience, not idolatry or immorality. Yes. Yeah. Also, Jesus' name is the morning star later in Revelation. It's just, that's all, it's all up in there. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the church in Ephesus had been rightly rejecting wrong teachings, but they lacked love. Here in Thyatira, the church had the love right, but they accepted wrong teachings from Jezebel. We need to be both zealous and full of discernment, not one or the other. Yeah. So what does being zealous and full of discernment look like? Where have you been compromising on what you believe? Have you been living as a sign that a new age is coming? into chapter 3. Would anybody like to read the letter to Sardis? I do. Okay. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. 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 This is a message for the one who has sinful spirit of God in the same stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen with strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of, of my God. Mm. Go back to what you heard and believe at first. And believe at first. Hold it to hold to it firmly. 
Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly, as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in, in the church in Sardis. Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Thank you, Darren. So, um, <clears throat> this area where Sardis was is now modern-day Sart. And the name Sardis means restoration. 600 years before this epistle was written, Sardis was thought to be impregnable. It was on top of a steep hill, and many people had tried to capture, tried and failed to capture it. Then one night, the Persian king Cyrus successfully captured the city by pulling a sneaky on them and devastated the city and their pride. That they never forgot the fact that they were once beaten. They had such pride in like, we'll never be beaten. But then one night, they got beaten, and the pride never recovered. If the church doesn't shape up, then Jesus will come back like a thief in the night, and they will be caught off guard and destroyed like it was 600 years before this was written. And this is not the only instance of Jesus coming back um, like unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. Um, it's also in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, 2 Peter 3.10, Matthew 24.43. So this is, there's a lot of evidence for Jesus' unexpected return. The city of Sardis, at this time in history, had a fraction of the splendor that it used to have. And apparently, so did the church. The church in Sardis had a reputation of being vibrant and alive, but presently they were asleep and needed to wake up fast or else all that the church had done would die. The life that the church was displaying presently left a lot to be desired and that they weren't fully living up to the actions that God called them to do. This, this idea of, um, in verse 5, the I will never erase their names for the book of life. Um, this idea of a book that God had with people's names was in Israel's psyche since Exodus, uh, specifically Exodus 32, 32. Um, but more recently in history, many Greek cities had a book of all the citizens in that city. And some of these cities would blot the names out of those who were condemned to death so as not to ruin the reputation of the city. Um, and so maybe Sardis was a practitioner of this method. I don't know. There's no record of that. But they would have at least had that in their minds. Um, you don't want to be erased from the city. You don't want to leave a bad name for the city. I don't want to leave a bad name for Jesus. <laughs> don't do anything that will get you erased. And the only way to stay in this book is to not soil your clothes with evil. This theme of wearing white returns again and again throughout Revelations. Here in chapter 3, 4, and 5 to Sardis, again in 3.18 in the letter to Laodicea, in 4.4 4, when, when he's describing the 12 elders, in chapter 6.11 with the martyrs under the altar, in chapter 7.9 every tribe, people, and tongue are clothed in white, and then again in chapter 7.13-14 the armies of, of heaven are clothed in white. 
It's not about being in a community that saves you. It is about living as you are supposed to. Calling yourself a Christian means nothing if you do not live like a Christian. And actually, um, the dude last night, I don't remember his name. Ben, Ben, I think it was last night. Um, didn't he mention something about, maybe it was earlier today. I don't remember. Just say it. He was like, <laughs> basically he was like, don't call yourself a Christian if you're not going to like live like a Christian. Yes, because A, it ruins Christian's reputation. B, you're just lying to yourself. In any case, that's a whole other topic. So, does our reputation match what's actually going on underneath? Have our actions been living up to what God has called us to do? Do we deserve to be called Christians to have our names written in the book of life? Two more churches. Would anybody like to read Philadelphia? Yes, got it right Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is a message from the one who is holy and true, the one who is the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. I know all things you do, and I have opened the door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obey my word and do not deny me. Like, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue those liars who say they are Jews, but they are not, to come down, bow down at, my, at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Because you have obeyed and commanded to preserve, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you, you have so no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write down the name of God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write them my new name. Anyone who hears, anyone with ears who hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So this is modern day Alasahir. I don't know how to say it, but somewhere in there. Um, and as Cody mentioned, his name meant means brotherly love. Um, but now Alasahir means city of Allah. Fun fact: um, in the in the the timeline theory. Um, this is meant to, this is thought to be reference to the church whenever the missions movement started in like the late 1700s, 1800s. Mm-hmm. It's called the Church of Philadelphia. Interesting uh, food for thought. Um, but yes, this epistle has a few similarities to the epistle in Smyrna. One, there is no reprimand for this church. Mm-hmm. Two, their main source of opposition comes from Satan's synagogue, which we deduced earlier are the Jews in the city. And three, they are 
pro- they both are promised the crown or their crown won't be taken. Um, so it has to do with this, this crown, this idea of a crown. The area where Philadelphia was located is notorious for earthquakes. And I actually saw this like two days ago. Uh, Portuguese. Um, and about 50 years before this was written, Sardis and Philadelphia were both seriously damaged by a major earthquake and had to take a loan from the emperor to rebuild. Laodicea also was pretty damaged, but as we'll see in their letter, they didn't have to take a loan. In this epistle, those who are faithful are, are referred to as pillars in the temple of my God. They no longer have to worry about stone pillars that will crumble in earthquakes. They are the pillars of the church, and because they are faithful, they will support it through any spiritual earthquake. This picture of God opening a door for the church implies that they have been given an opportunity to take the gospel into new territory. Though they have a little strength, they have the backing of God because they obeyed him. We see that in verse 8. Verse 9 is actually a reversal of some prophecies that Israel had received. For example, the most common example, uh, for example, the most common prophecy was that the foreign nations, the majority, would come and bow down before the Jewish people, the, the minority, and acknowledge that Israel's God is the true God. But now it would be the Jewish people of Philadelphia, the majority, would come and bow down before the Christians, the, the minority here, and acknowledge that Jesus is the true Messiah. If the Philadelphian Christians are faithful, then they will be rewarded by becoming citizens of the new Jerusalem, where there are no earthquakes, and God will write his name on them, which is an act of possession. <clears throat> So, what are some of the earthquakes that we are facing right now? What can you do during this time of testing to hold on to what you have so that your crown will not be taken away? Will you still obey God when you have little strength? I'll go ahead and read this one. This is my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you all are lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice, open the door and I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. To those who are victorious, those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. 
Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So this church is near modern day Den- Denizli. Somewhere. <laughs> um, Laodicea was located at the junction of some major trade routes that ran north and south and then east and west. So it was a very rich city. And it was also the banking capital of the area. Hence, they didn't need a loan from the emperor. They could rebuild on their own. They were super prideful about that. It boasted a great medical school, which specialized in ophthalmology, or the healing of the eyes. It was, like a, it was called the Phrygian ointment or something like that. And farmers had developed a breed of black sheep with high-quality wool that made Laodicean clothes highly sought after. Unfortunately, the nearby river Lycus did not provide nearly enough water to support the city. Um, it would like dry up in the summer, which is not great. <laughs> and it just not a lot of water flow. But there were two aqueducts that provided water. One came from the city of Hierapolis, a city built on a cliff which boasted and still boasts a famous set of hot springs. So this water was pumped to Laodicea about four to five miles away. And the second aqueduct ran from Colossae to the southeast. Colossae received cold, fresh water from the snow-capped Mount Cadmus and transported it to Laodicea 11 miles away. Can anyone tell me why I brought up these four random characteristics of Laodicea? It's not a rhetorical question. Are you making the reference to in Genesis how the four rivers came together? No. But maybe it's somewhere in there. I don't know. Reference to all the things he says that he, he talks about. Exactly. Versus. 15 through 18. You are neither hot nor cold. What happens when you pump cold water in the turkey sun 11 miles? It becomes lukewarm. If you pump hot water in the turkey sun all the way 4 to 5 miles, it cools off. It becomes lukewarm. You're rich. They're banking. They're the banking capital of the area. They got a ton of money. They don't need a loan from the emperor. They are blind. They have a school specializing in eye medicine. Um... They buy white garments. They had a breed of black sheep that would produce black wool for black garments. Oh, yeah, and then there's the ointment for your eyes, so you'll be able to see. Mm. Dang. Got <laughs> The church in Laodicea was so spiritually worthless that it was nauseating to Jesus. Their salt had lost its flavor, and they were not a city set on a hill. Jesus throws everything they could boast about back in their face and describes them as lukewarm water that was useless. They still said they followed Jesus, but they were not on fire for him. They had religion, but no passion. Sidebar, a fun thought experiment, which y'all can get back to me on if y'all want, is that Saul, before he became Paul, is cold while Judas Iscariot is lukewarm. Just let that marinate up top later. And... Tell me what you think about it. Saul, so Saul is cold, cold water. Judas Iscariot is lukewarm. <clears throat> See what y'all think. Um, the affluent attitude of the Laodiceans rubbed off on the Christians, but it left them wretched, miserable, and poor. 
Their special eye cream from the medical school couldn't help them fix their spiritual blindness. And nice black clothes they admired were nothing compared to the white clothes of perfection that Jesus offers. Jesus tells them to be rich in his eyes, which hardly ever means monetarily rich. He tells them to wear white garments, which comes from doing good works. And finally, he tells them to buy ointment so that they can see by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. After harshly rebuking them, Jesus tells them that this is how he treats his friends in Proverbs 3, 11 12. That's another reference. How often do we groan and complain under God's discipline when it is in fact by his love that compels him to rebuke us? Jesus' depiction as the beginning of God's creation is reminiscent of Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And we see in Colossians 4.16 that the letter to Colossians was supposed to be passed on to Laodicea. So they, were, they had a, a nice little bond. The world came about because of Jesus, and now the new creation is coming about through him and his resurrection. He refers to himself in verse 14 as the Amen, a word that in Hebrew means true or certain. So, how interesting is it that Jesus refers to himself as certain when talking to a church that is lukewarm or uncertain? Their spiritual apathy had removed Jesus from his rightful place in the church. So, there, so he was waiting outside the door for them to repent and let him back in. Jesus standing at the door knocking echoes the parables in the Gospels of the master of the house, returning at the unexpected hour in Matthew 24 and builds on the warning to the church in Sardis. And the original language, the original language of this church, of, of this um, verse in verse 20, denotes a universality to it. That this request is not just confined to the Laodicean church or the other six churches, but to anyone and everyone who hears this message. So he's still standing at our doors knocking. Um, the part of, about sharing a meal anticipates the great wedding feast of the Lamb that is described later in Revelations, not even to mention his promise in verse 21, that those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne. I mean, like, what, else, what else can be said about that? I mean, isn't that kind of cool? <laughs> but it is interesting that God saves argu- arguably some of his best promises for the church, he rebukes the harshest. Mm. So, are we spiritually worthless to the Lord? Mm. Where have we pushed Jesus out and shut the door in our lives? Have you been thankful for the discipline that God has given you? Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches.